Last week we saw Israel trying to weaponize God in battle, and it didn't work out so well from 1 Samuel chapter 4. Israel made decisions and afterward expected God to show up and support those decisions. And we do that, God is nothing more than a lucky charm or a rabbit's foot in our life. And as a result, the armies of Israel were defeated, priests were taken out of ministry, the tabernacle at Shiloh destroyed. They went about it without God and then in the end asked, God, why didn't you show up? At this point, one could say that Israel was entering into a dark season of life, 20 years or more. Perhaps we could describe it as an age where they were deconstructing their faith. People were disappointed by their spiritual leaders. They couldn't hear from God. They wondered about the future of faith and society. Sound familiar? The final verses we see the story take a cruciform shape, that is, the shape of the cross. God allowed his glory to be taken into exile, the ark captured by the Philistines, taken to their land. The disciples of Jesus perhaps felt the same way, the same sense of aching loss and disenchantment as Jesus took his final breath on the cross. But we all know how the story of Jesus ends. And that gives us an indication of what will happen here in the days of Israel. The Philistines capture the ark, and much like Israel, they view it as a magic box. A God enslaved for their own purposes. And these two stories, the story of Israel last week, and the story of the Philistines this week, it forms quite a pair. Last week, we saw what happens when the church tries to take God captive. This week, we'll see what happens when culture tries to take God captive. At the end of last spring, uh, we lost Rosebud, our beloved dog of 14 years. And ever since then, naturally, we've been talking about getting another dog. And my wife, Amanda, has really been talking about getting another dog. So throughout the fall... She was searching Craigslist and classified ads and emailing people and texting people and calling people. And last Friday, we drove to the border of Idaho to pick up a golden retriever puppy. And this is her picture. And we named her Pepper because she was the most dominant dog of the litter. And there are times we can tell you where she's a sweet pepper and other times that she's a spicy pepper. Last time uh, we had a dog in our home and we're raising a dog, it's when our kids were babies and toddlers. So it's been a while. We've forgotten, naturally, what this training phase would do to our life. Martha Van Houten commented this week, we sent a daughter to college and now we're starting over with a dog. That is true. And Pepper can be really cute. Remember those uh, free posters of puppies that you would get when you bought five books at the Scholastic Book Fair at school? We've been living in those posters. That's what our life has been like. But Pepper's also a handful. The biting, the potty training, the sleepless nights. It wasn't until we got her home that we realized what this would actually look like. And in 1 Samuel chapter 5 through 7, the Philistines discover the same thing. The Philistines, this cute little deity to add to their temple collection. The story ends with a person asking, who is able to stand before the Lord 
this holy God. God is more than any of us ever have bargained for. And yet, that's exactly what we need in our life. So we're going to look at, the, at, at this God, the, the uniqueness of this God, the God of the Bible in three ways through this story. We're going to look at God's authenticity. Secondly, and third, God's healing power. God's authenticity, his sacrifice, and thirdly, his healing power. We begin with his unique authenticity. At the opening of chapter 5, the Philistines bring the Ark of the Covenant home. Initially, the Ark is carried to the city of Ashdod, one of five major cities of the Philistine kingdom. And they place it in a temple dedicated to the god Dagon. This god has been well attested to in uh, ancient Near East archaeology. Uh, he's a god of crops, a god of fertility, a god of agriculture. And you, one could say that the Philistine worldview is very similar to what we find in Greco-Roman culture. Various gods sitting in a pantheon, all dedicated to various purposes. And in the ancient Near East, when an enemy nation was defeated, it meant that the victorious nation's god had defeated the rival god. But in order to avoid offending the rival deity, the victorious nation would bring the idol or relic of this deity into one of their temples. So without much thought, the Philistines add the Ark of the Covenant of Israel to their collection. After all, one can never have too many gods on your side. But strange things begin to happen. In the first morning, they enter the temple and they find the statue of Dagon. It had fallen over, face down before the Ark of the Covenant. They go in the next morning. Dagon was once again face down before the Ark of the Lord. But this time, his hands and his head were cut off, leaving only the trunk of Dagon. The ancient Near East dismemberment was a brutal custom of vengeance that one would bring upon their enemy. And then finally we get this picture. We see that the people of Ashdod are struck with what is described here in the text as tumors. The Philistines were a seafaring people. And sailors weren't the only passengers aboard ships. Rats were common stowaways. And at the time, also carriers of the bubonic plague, as you might know, is a pretty serious, severe illness. Symptoms include fever, gastrointestinal issues, and swollen lymph nodes that on observation look like tumors. Last week we saw the Hebrew wordplay that there is a weight. There is a heaviness to God's holiness. And here we see the same thing. The Lord weighed heavy on the false god Dagon, as well as the people of Philistia. Now to our modern ears, strange. But God is sending a message to the Philistines. And it's not necessarily a message of condemnation. Rather, it's a message of salvation. He's not a God like their gods. He's real. He's living. He's active. He's not a trinket to be added to their pantheon. He's not a deity to be domesticated. He's not a cute little puppy that you bring home from Idaho. And I think this can actually help us reframe difficulty in our own life. It's been said it's not a matter of if we will worship. It's a matter of what we will worship. 
and our heart can be just like that Philistine temple. That even if we're following Jesus, he's just one of many deities in the pantheon of our heart. And it's easy to discover who those false gods might be. Just simply follow your destructive emotions. What is it that makes you fearful, angry, anxious, despondent, jealous, hateful, cynical? You know, in, in America, our most common, you know, false metagods are reputation, money, sex, power. I think Deion Sanders even wrote a book about all that from his own personal testimony. While in and of themselves, all of these things are good, yet when they become ultimate, they become enslaving. The gods of culture consistently overpromise, they underdeliver, and then they make us miserable along the way. And the one true living God we find out in this story is not having it. He often works through very ordinary means to crush the false idols of our hearts. And while it feels painful to us, the result of his salvation is liberation. This was true in 1 Samuel 5. It was centrally true in the ministry of Jesus. It is still true for today. Some of you know my story. And my ordination experience as a minister was rather painful. Uh, in Presbyterianism, that's our denomination, uh, there's like a year's worth of exams. Theological exams, Bible exams, church history exams, sacramental exams, all these sorts of exams, written exams, group exams. And then one of these exams, you stand before every minister in Presbytery. It's like 75 or 100 ministers. And you just answer any and all questions that they want to ask you. And I remember the day that I came up to the podium. It was a podium just like this. And I was full of myself. I was a young pastor. I was helping to plant a church. I was doing the really missional thing. I was kind of above probably most ministers in the room. And they started to ask me questions. And at one point, someone asked me a question. And I faltered. And it was like I bled in a shark tank. All of these follow-up questions came that I didn't have very good answers for. And then it turned into a full discussion of how we might improve the whole process, essentially using me as the case study. I felt not only humbled, but humiliated. And steaming, I walked out of the back to my colleague, Scott, and I said, I don't need any of this. When I was in business, everyone respected me. And that's when the light of Christ shone into the darkness. And in that moment, and in that season, which turned out to be a very dark season, God was crushing me because I had given myself to this false God, to my own reputation, and he wasn't having it. He wanted me to be free, to be free with him. Life is full of challenges, and certainly this is not the only way to understand every instance of pain and loss, but 
if God crushed Dagon to reveal himself as the one true living God, how might this reframe what he's doing amidst the difficulty of your own life? God is authentic. Secondly, we see God's sacrifice. Starting in chapter 6, we find out that the Philistines have had enough of this God. He's more than they had bargained. Feast together to figure out what they should do. They've obviously upset the God of Israel. They're feeling defeated. They just want out. It would have been even wiser for them to have consulted Israel's priests. Because ultimately Yahweh was not against neighboring nations. He was only revealing himself to them. The priests, though, tell the leaders of Philistia that they should return the ark to Israel, but include a sacrifice to atone for any wrong that they have committed against this God. And the sacrifice they come up with is five gold tumors, five gold mice. That sounds really, really weird. But remember, there are five major cities in Philistia, so this sacrifice was meant to atone for the whole kingdom. The gift of tumors and mice is what leads scholars to believe that they are suffering from the bubonic plague. Verse 5 through 7, the exodus is once again referenced by the Philistine priest. And the priests issue a warning to the Philistine leaders. If you don't obey this God, if you don't fear him, you're going to end up just like Pharaoh. A laughingstock of the ancient Near East. That story was getting around. So they load up the ark on a wagon, accompanied by these gold offerings, pulled by two cows that have just given birth to calves. By nature, if you don't know this, by the way, I didn't know this. I just discovered this through research. I'm not a veterinarian. But by nature, mother cows will never separate themselves naturally from their calves. They always keep them common practice in the ancient world that if you wanted to determine the will of a deity... Do it by going against nature. And if that's what the deity wanted, then that would happen. The cows would go against their very nature. And that's exactly what happens in this story. The cows leave their calves and they pull the cart to Israel. The people of this town, Beth Shemesh, they're out in the field working. They see the ark appear on the horizon. They rejoice to meet it. The Ark of the Covenant has returned to Israelites. And they move it onto this large stone. They chop up the wagon into, into kindling. They burn this fire. And they sacrifice the cows to the Lord in both thanksgiving and for atonement. For the sin that Israel had committed. Now, all this sounds strange and ancient. Gold images, wagons, cows against their nature. But it reveals profound realities about the nature of atonement. Now in the 20th century it became popular amongst some theologians to dismiss the notion that Jesus had died under the wrath of God's justice to atone for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. Yet to deny atonement is to violate a core principle of the universe. When you break something, what do you do? <laughs> you offer to pay for it. If you borrow a tool from it, offer to replace it. If you get pulled over for speeding, you make amends with a fine. If you're a husband, 
and you get into a fight with your wife and you know truly that you're wrong, you go to New Seasons and you buy a Tony's chocolate bar. I'm just saying that theoretically. I've, I've heard about that. If someone asks you to forgive them, to do so requires that you pay the price, that you absorb the wrong. The author of Hebrews says it with clarity, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Reconciliation always comes at a price. And amidst the brokenness of this world, atonement is a daily affair in our lives. C.S. Lewis speaks to this in the weight of glory. He says, apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurologist index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all merits and also the healing of that old ache. But to get on the inside, to experience the healing of that old ache, it comes naturally at a price. But what this story specifically teaches us is that the effectiveness of atonement depends on the God you serve. To make amends with false gods, you pay the price. You pay the price. When the Philistines suspected that they had offended Yahweh, they came up with a sacrificial solution. They crafted gold trinkets by hand. And then at the end of the story, you see them kind of crossing their fingers, hoping that it would all work. Their leaders follow the ark right to the border of Israel. They're kind of looking over the hill, thinking, oh man, I really hope this works. And God's removes, God removes his hands. This is always the way with false gods. They're always working to make things right, yet never certain that they are. If personal image is ultimate in your heart, you're always working to figure out what people want or what people need, always uncertain that you've done enough. Financial security can be ultimate. When John D. Rockefeller was asked how much is enough, he replied, one more dollar. With power, something interesting happens. The more that we grasp for power, the more damaging our actions become, which creates an even greater sense of powerlessness, which leads us to more damage control. To make amends with false gods, you pay the price. What we also see in this story is to make amends with the one true living God, he pays the price. He pays the price. It's the most wonderful thing we could ever hear. Israel had definitively broken relationship with Yahweh. But notice how relationship with God was restored. Not through anything Israel did. Not through anything that they came up with. Not with any merit of their own. Not in a moment of inspiration. But reconciliation happened because of what God provided. The ark returned to Israel ever so miraculously. The cows against their very nature. And the Israelites knew from the law of Moses how to make amends with God. Call together the Levite priests and make the sin offering. And what did the sin offering include? The sacrifice of a bull or a goat burned on the altar. 
when the ark rolled into town, the rock was there on which to place the ark. And it carried with it everything needed for a proper reconciliation. The cows for the sacrifice, the wood from the wagon for the fire. God provided everything that was needed for reconciliation. And on the cross, when Jesus cried out, it is finished. He wasn't just commentating on the final moments of his life. He declared that he alone has provided everything we need to be in a right relationship with God, to be reconciled to our Heavenly Father. Looking to faith in Jesus, we abandon our efforts. They're really of no use. With Jesus, there's no guesswork involved. He's made our reconciliation with God not only possible, but certain. And that persistent question that haunts us, have we done enough? It is answered once and for all Jesus. To reframe the words of C.S. Lewis, it's in Christ that we are at last summoned inside. Glory and honor beyond all our merits, the healing of that old ache. And that all comes to us because of God's sacrifice, the sacrifice in Christ. Third, we come to God's healing. The story ends in a strange way, and that's because of the wonky way that modern translators translate chapter 6, verse 19. So hopefully I can bring some clarity. The ark returned, and in Israel it became a sort of tourist attraction, sitting on this stone. And remember, there's a sacramental sense about the ark, that God's presence mysteriously dwells with it. And no one was ever to open up the lid and look inside of it. Remember, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. But some guys in this particular town decide to go against the law, open up the lid, and have a look inside. And they come and, just, and they just die. Now that might, might sound extreme. But when we think about some comparative examples, I think it makes perfect sense. Some of you are mountaineers. You know, people who climb mountains. And every year, people who climb mountains, even Mount Hood, each year people die. Sometimes it's purely accidental. Other times people haven't received proper training. Maybe they don't have the right gear. Maybe they weren't summiting with the right partners who were equal. They lack respect for the mountain. And I can't, <coughs> God can't help being God any more than Mount Hood can stop being a mountain. To try to change God and who he is is like asking Mount Hood to become a hill so that we might more easily ascend it. It might make for an easy ascent, but it would diminish the mountain's beauty, its majesty, and its glory. We don't want to change such things. We just need to understand how to rightly relate to them which is another way of saying we need to fear it. We need to offer it respect. And that's exactly what Israel do, does in verse 21. Israel moves the ark to this other city, Kiribati Jerem, a town that historically has provided furnishings for the ark. 
So after these 70 men open up this lid and they die, the people of the town are freaking out. They're like, we need to get this to the experts. Which town's people? Where's the town where the experts reside? So they move it to this other town. And sure enough, they appoint a priest who can help Israel rightly relate to God. And this shows yet another profound difference between the God of the Bible and the false gods of culture. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, says this, In any culture in which God is largely absent, sex, money, and politics will fill the vacuum for different people. This is the reason that our political discourse is increasingly... Many describe the current poisonous public discourse as a lack of bipartisanship, but the roots go much deeper than that. As Niebuhr taught, they go back to the beginning of the world, to our alienation from God, and to our frantic efforts to compensate for our feelings of cosmic nakedness and powerlessness. The only way to deal with all of these things is to heal our relationship with God. And that's what God provides here in the final verses of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. Reputation, money, sex, politics, those are all good things in and of themselves. Don't get me wrong, but they don't have the power to heal. They are created things, not ultimate things. Most of us have been to the top of Mount Hood on a clear day. And whether you're at the tippy top or you're just standing there at Timberline Lodge, notice what you feel. An overwhelming sense of beauty and majesty that captures all of your attention. It is a beholding. It has the ability to put everything else into perspective, even if just for a moment. And so when Jesus makes his way onto the scene, John the Baptist introduces him. Behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the one who can bring healing. In the gospel, we experience healing not by doing, but by beholding. Jesus told his disciples, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So we rest assured that when we behold Christ in our heart, we behold God himself. Faith is a matter of beholding. All of his beauty, his majesty, his worth, his glory. And when we behold him, Jesus has a way of capturing all of our attention into perspective. God is great. There is no one like him. There is no one beside him. That's a prayer of Samuel that we can find later on in the story. But it's also a great summary of this passage. The story opened with the Philistines capturing the ark, thinking they've picked up a cute little deity to add to the temple collection. The story ends with people asking, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And it's Jesus. And it's in him that we stand. Let me pray. O oh God, our King, by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the first day of the week, you conquered sin, you put death to flight, and you gave us the hope of everlasting life. Redeem all our days by this, your victory, 
forgive our sins, banish our fears, and make us bold to praise you and to do your will, and steal us to wait for the consummation of your kingdom on that last great day. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.